Hi, everyone, and welcome to Dead to Rights, the podcast. I'm your host, Donna Carrick. Today, I'm going to bring you a great uh, interview with author Joseph Glasner, who's going to talk to us about his latest book, Murderland, as well as his book from last year titled Life After America, both of which are quite fitting on this day when I'm recording, which is November 6th, and it's Election Day in the U.S., Joseph is actually a transplanted American. He's an expatriate living here in Toronto, Canada. And he has lived here with us in the uh, Canadian crime writing community for quite a number of years. I've known Joseph through the, the Toronto community for several of those years. And he, his interview is really a lot of fun, so I hope you're going to enjoy it. We don't know yet how today's election has turned out, and I've been scrupulously avoiding turning on the television all day. I really just can't even face the ups and downs and the the, uh, falls and climbs of, of today's election. However it turns out, I hope that voter turnout is really, really high. I hope that Americans say, we want our democracy, because no matter who gets elected in any given state, in any given district, democracy is worth saving. And uh, only elections, free and fair elections, can, can save democracy. So if you haven't already and you hear this podcast, get out and vote. And if you have already, congratulations, you've done a wonderful thing. Our short story for today is a piece of flash fiction, which I really enjoy. It's a comic caper by Melody Campbell, titled The Battle of Beavercoat. And uh, it, for, was for, it was actually uh, published in 2012 in EFD1 Starship Goodwords by Carrick Publishing. So we were really proud to have Melody in even our first anthology way back in 2012. I'm thinking of doing another anthology in 2019, so if you're a writer out there and you've got some short stories that uh, you've been brushing up on, keep me in mind. I, I really would love to do another Carrick Publishing anthology, if not in 2019, then in 2020. I think it's overdue. The Maydams of Mayhem actually have an anthology coming out in 2019, so that's why I say it may actually be 2020 before I come out with mine, because I don't like to compete with the Maydams. Um They are my dear, dear friends, as you know. So look forward to that. Watch for that coming up. Also, if you're a published author and you'd like to be interviewed on Dead to Rights, uh, please let me know. You can contact me anytime at carrickpublishing at rogers.com. And in the subject line, say Dead to Rights interview. I'm now calling all authors for 2019 lineups. I want to get started on those interviews. So get in touch with me and it's really going to be first come, first serve. Okay. Now, without further ado, I want to bring you my review of a podcast uh, titled Real Time with Bill Maher. Now, I'm sure that you've heard of Bill Maher. He's extremely famous, but I never have time to watch his show. I do enjoy his humor. I enjoy his rather ascorbic view on life. And I discovered about six months ago that his show, Real Time, is available in podcast. Um, so I've been listening to it every time it publishes. It's, it's just a great delight. If you love podcasts and if you love humor, please uh, get into his sharp wit and give it a try. And now, please give a big Dead to Rights welcome 
to Joseph Glasner. Joseph writes as Joseph Mark Glasner. He is the internationally acclaimed American-Canadian author of seven crime novels written under his own name and his pen name, Joseph Louis, including the Seamus and Arthur Ellis-nominated Madeleine, Bantam Books, 1987. Life After America is his first memoir. It's a personal and optimistic tale of life as a young writer and one of the first American resistors to go to Canada in the 60s to protest the Vietnam War. Never a formal member of any anti-war group, Glasner's quest to think for himself and draw his own conclusions will resonate with many today in an increasingly dangerous and polarized world. His unusual, darkly humorous coming-of-age tale brings life to the joy and pitfalls of falling in love in an era of sexual revolution, surviving in the big city while hunting for his first big break, and finding redemption helping John Lennon kick-start Lennon and Yoko's iconic War is Over campaign. Glasner's eighth crime novel, Murderland, his first in 30 years, was published in 2018. Let me guess, Donna. Yes, hi Joseph. How are you? And welcome to Dead to Rights. Hi Donna, how are you? I'm well, thanks. It's a beautiful morning in the North Country. <laughs> I know. We, oh, you're up, up north. We are, yes, yes. And it's been just a gorgeous week. You wouldn't even believe it. So you won't be going to the Sisters in Crime. I'm disappointed. I won't. I won't. But I'm happy that you're there. Yes, yes. Well, say hello to everybody for me. It would be great to be there, but it's better to be here. I will. I will. (laughs) I wanted to talk to you about your new book, Murderland, which I see has come out just recently, and it looks just fascinating. It looks like a really intelligent, fun caper. Um, Your main character is Harry Holiday, and he's fittingly named because he's in Canada's holiday capital, Niagara Falls, and um, he's trying to keep a business alive called Murderland. Is that right? Yes, yes. Murderland is a is a sort of invention of of my youth of going around to antique stores and um, uh, all kinds of uh, crazy places that that um, exhibited weird stuff like the Ripley's museums of the past. Mm-hmm. Still exist, of course. Yes. Um, and uh, turning that into an idea of creating a museum of murder, murder and gangland uh, memorabilia, which would be suitable for a place like Atlantic City or Coney Island or Niagara Falls, or mm-hmm. at least the part of Niagara Falls where I've located this, which is the old sort of... Um, uh, boardwalk type of place in in on um, uh, just over the the uh, the Horseshoe Falls. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's been a that's been a place that's been going on for for a long time. Yes, um, yes, it's that, a favorite. Sorry, it's a favorite stomping ground of our family. All of our kids have enjoyed going there from a very young age and seeing the Ripley's Museum and the Wax Museums and. 
standing under the falls and watching them come down, you know? Absolutely. No, no, Niagara Falls is something special. And uh, with all the tackiness around it, uh, at, you know, in places, it's still just just absolutely magnificent. And it's, it's interesting to see the crowds in the summer, too, because you, you just you, you feel this energy, this awe, this this um, this magic of it, and uh, some people get very snobbish about it. Oh, Niagara Falls, blah blah blah, and they don't, you know, don't really. Until like they it. go there, Joseph, because everybody they there. They, hit, they go, walk up to the falls, and 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 the the Murderland part of it, the Wax Museum, the the Ripley's Like Museum, and that sort of thing, is is about you know about the fun and the garishness, and of mm-hmm. course. It, it is a murder mystery. Um, it's more of a caper. It's more of a suspense story. It, it mixes almost all of the mystery genres, except I would say it's certainly not a cozy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it does play to a lot of different um, genres. <clears throat> and um, the, the real the real thing about it is not so much the setting, which is which is unusual and, and unique and, and special. Uh, uh, but the the contrast, the idea that I'm working with an anti-hero, not not a lot of, of crime writers do that. A lot mm-hmm. of crime writers work with the the hero protagonist who's going to solve everything and mm-hmm. yeah, wrap up everything and beat everybody up. And and this is a this is a true anti-hero in the in the real sense of. Uh, um, the characters in Catch-22 or in any of the Elmore Leonard books or the Carl Hyacin books or in, I like to point out that it has a lot of um, similarities to anything by the Coen brothers. It has that edgy type of uh, ambiance that says this is, this is about the underbelly of society, the mm-hmm. underworld, the, the areas where you're not normally going to go the strip joints, the, uh, the 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 bars, the people who are um, on the sidelines, um, the the, the uh, motorcycle gangs, swindlers, um, uh, the bad the bad side of the construction industry. <laughs> the bad dudes, yes, the bad side of the construction industry, definitely. Yeah, that that's well known in that area. And uh, but but Harry Holiday is really likable despite all that. Right from right from be- reading the blurb on Amazon, I immediately like him. Um, I don't know why. You know, I'm not a murderer and I don't support murder, but I like that guy. Yeah, and that's been, that was an unusual kind of, of uh, thing because he evolved as, as I mean, I actually the, the the premise of the story, which I won't you know really I don't want to give away too much, but but it's it's I don't think it really hurts to um, give away this side of it. It's someone who is in jeopardy and discovers that um, he needs to commit a crime. In order to get out of this, and he 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 doesn't see himself. Although he's you know he's he's walked at the edges of things before. He doesn't see uh, committing crime. He doesn't see himself as a criminal, and and yet he suddenly finds himself in a situation where he says, "Aha! 
maybe I can do this mm-hmm. to get out of that because I'm so backed up in the wall. And I like that idea of being uh, desperate. And I think that everybody identifies with that the most. Mm-hmm. He is a likable character because he sees um, he sees a lot uh, of the way things are. He's observing. He he tries to take. Um, a broader picture of what life's all about, and he's and he's he's um, he's got natural charm, this natural charisma that comes from from this kind of person that you gravitate to, and he's and he's the quintessential bad boy, um, that that person that you want to save, that you want to rescue, that you want to see. Um, uh, win in spite of himself. You know that he's flawed. Uh, this was this was the fun part of it. Uh, I didn't really have any trouble writing the book uh, in, in the sense that I'm not like that. Uh, in the sense that I've probably only um, uh, done one, you know, major crime in my life, which I which I got on the FBI's uh, least wanted list, and that and that was, was coming to Canada. Coming to Canada during the Vietnam War, and uh, and that was that was a you know a, a very very difficult thing. It was it was so it was so out of context, um, and yet I did it. And of course, I wrote another uh, memoir about that called Life After America. Yes, yes, a fascinating book for our listeners, Life After America by Joseph Glasner. Please look for it. It's um. A, a truly exceptional book about uh, Joseph's journey and life after leaving the U.S. And I, I'll just interject briefly, Joseph. My ex-husband was a conscientious objector who came to Canada in, I believe, 1969. And um, when you mentioned about how difficult it was, my heart kind of took a little twist because I know that my ex-husband suffered terribly from having left his home. He really was never really good with it. And, um, and I think that's that's part of the ambivalence with, or, or what I was exploring with with Harry Holiday, um, because he confronts himself. He confront, you know, why am I doing this? What what am I doing? Am I really, you know, do I have the nerve to, you know, to, to commit a crime, um, to to save myself, or to perceive to save myself, or to revenge? what I feel is, you know, has been done to my father, um, you know, all of those ambivalences are what fascinate me. And there's part, there's an emotional part of the story that is autobiographical. At the end, I, I have, of Murderland, to go back to that for a second, um, in Murderland, I, I took, a, took the opportunity to do something that I thought would be really fun for the reader, which was to write a very long um, piece at the end mm-hmm. about, and usually you you know that that little thing, that little piece about the authors, you know, well, I lived, lived, grew up in yeah, Germany. where you live now, and that sort of thing. But there were a few items that I picked out of that that I really want to ask you about now that you mentioned them. And the first is your mother, and you say that she reinvented herself as a businesswoman and a political. Um, entity and uh, she had originally been I think it was a seamstress I love the phrase reinventing herself in the 1930s and mm-hmm. she she had her own business she was a sketcher and a fashion designer there mm-hmm. there's, there's 
there's basically three entities in, in the fashion industry. There's the, the manufacturer who get, gets their, you know, like uh, Christian Dior or something like that, or, or some of the, you know, the, the top names. Then there's the, the designer um, who sort of works under that, and they can be the same person. And there's the sketcher, and the sketcher actually draws up the, the actual images and looks of that. And um, she was a designer and a sketcher, so she, she had both of those jobs at different times. Uh, she had a sketching studio. She sketched for, for different manufacturers. She was a sketcher and sort of junior designer for a very famous designer named Molly Parnas. And then she had her own line under another manufacturer uh, in her last two years in the 1930s. So she was one of the few people who had a job all the way through the 1930s. And she had a high school d diploma from a, from a uh, commercial girls' school where she was taught uh, commercial design. So she basically worked through the 30s. My father ended up in the, in the uh, glove business. Um, she financed his company, his first company. He, he had a, a coat manufacturing company. And they moved to a, a smallish city outside of New York at the beginning of World War II, um, where she basically retired and became a sort of socialite. Mm -hmm. And through a bunch of circumstances, um, we ended up in, in uh, uh, the rural area outside of the city, which is only 25 miles from Manhattan, but it was mainly farms, forests, fields, orchards, um, you know, that sort of thing. And in that area, she reinvented herself as um, she was no longer in business. She, she did work with my father later on when the business was failing because of his health and, and foreign imports and the glove business, which wiped out. Many people don't know this, but it was one of the first businesses that was wiped out when when the trade was opened up with uh, South Korea and the other Asian countries in the 1950s because they were able to manufacture at such a low cost. Before that, the entire glove business in America was all domestic. All, manu all the glove manufacturers were in, were in the United States, and 90% of them were in a town in upstate New York called, called Gloversville. Mm -hmm. Going back to my mother, she was a, a very unusual, a very interesting character in her own right, um, who, who uh, I've never really come into, uh, you know, a, a person that seemed to have such a, an eclectic background. Um, and I, she was an interesting person and could be difficult at times to some people. Uh, she, she evoked a, a sort of a, a strong emotions from people. People loved her and hated her where, where I think my father was universally loved. <laughs> and, <laughs> That was interesting, but she, you know, between the two of them, uh, they founded uh, a number of things in this small community and rural community in New Jersey, like the the Lions Club, the Lions Auxiliary, the the United Way. Um, they saved the local Boy Scout troop. Uh, they were active in the PTA. They were they were uh, in the Seniors Club when they when my mother became a senior, but. Uh, again, I was I was lucky to, to see 
someone who is multifaceted. I grew mm-hmm. up. Mm-hmm. And I want to interject there because something that I, I know is even true today, but was far more true in those days, is that in order to be a strong woman, there had to be aspects of you that weren't universally loved. Um, it, it just goes with the territory of being a strong woman. And it's unfortunate because the same, the exact same aspects in a man are easily accepted, but they're still not in women. And that may have accounted for for the duality uh, that you saw in your mother. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, and, the, and the strongness wasn't about, you know, it was just simply um, that she was the oldest of of uh, in an immigrant family, and she had to basically look after her parents and her three younger brothers. Mm-hmm. So she was, and, and my father, who was an orphan as well, he was adopted by her when she was about twelve. She, he was two years older than her. And I say adopted because um, they used to call his family the orphans. He, he had a very old. My my grandfather was very very old when he had children, and his wife, my grandmother, died in the the uh, flu epidemic in, in um, 1920, at the tail end of that. And so my grandfather, who was in, almost in his 60s uh, by then, was raising five younger children, and my mother basically, um, you know, was, was the, the, fa- the parent figure to my, mm-hmm. to my father. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So she, she just simply... There was never a thing where she, you know, and, and I think I think that you see this tenacity in, in the characters that I write about. They just pick themselves up and keep going, keep tenacity going. Tenacity is the word, really, isn't it? Um, that's it the operating word that I'm looking for, and it was essential to anyone who survived those times. You also talked about your father. Uh, you said that he loved Edgar Allan Poe and he hated guns, and... Um, he taught you how to act cool under fire. Tell me about that incident. It involved the Boy Scouts. Well, that that was a, that was a little um, strange little thing where, where he he came into the he he recognized my mother recognized the Boy Scouts when she was um, quite you know I'd say in her twenties and and put my my uncle into it. Uh, he was a young kid, big a big kid. Um, and she didn't want him to get into the gangs, and they were they were on hard times at that point. The rest of the family, and and she was doing okay, and basically supporting everybody. And when he was captured during World War Two, he attributed um, his uh, Boy Scout training to his survival during that period. So. My mother and fa- father were both into this idea. Uh, my father was a ghetto kid. I mean, there, there, he was a, an inner city uh, dropout at sixteen, and was you know was in, was around the gangs. You can see from the, the the list of of relatives that I had that were involved in pro- the prohibition era that it wouldn't have been hard for him to become a bad kid. He, mm-hmm. they, they were all tough kids. He was like crime my, adjacent, let's say that. He was crime it was adjacent. adjacent. <laughs> it, was part of, it was part of their infrastructure, part of their culture. And mm-hmm. um, he recognized early on, there was a, a, an odd story in there that, that, that I've pieced together, and I won't go into it at length, but um, at one point he showed up at my mother's house 
with a with a gun that they had supposedly found on the street. He and his his pal Leo. This is my father's pal Leo, and my mother. And they wanted my mother to hide the gun, and and uh, she refused and made them get rid of it. And uh, pretty much from then on, he was a pacifist. He was he was uh, drafted, but he was never called up in World War Two because mm-hmm. he was older and he had children. Um, and he was a manufacturer, and he had a war, uh, a, um, a war job in, in an armaments factory, supervising mm-hmm. uh, the manufacturing of, of uh, guns and munitions and stuff. Um, so he was considered vital, but but uh, um, he he just thought war was was stupid. He thought that the best solution to war was to send. All the old men. Uh huh. Uh huh. My husband often says that too. Send all the old generals and let's see how it ends up. You know. And he was. A, he was. A, you know. He wasn't a rule breaker. He. He was a very fine businessman. As I said, found was co-founder with my mother the at the um, at the United Way and the Lions Club and all of this sort of thing in this small town. My mother ran for politics, lost one time, one uh, one. Uh, one of her seats and was always called on by the people. But I think, I think uh, going back to him, one time we were at the, um, I was not at this particular Boy Scout uh, thing, but there was, we had a camp in the middle of the woods. It was called Camp 28, not important, but in this rural area. And there were uh, very rich people in this area who built their country estates, sort of like the Gatsby type of thing that you'd mm-hmm. see, but very people right adjacent to these homes who lived out in the woods in tar paper shacks, some without even uh, plumbing and electricity. I mean, real squatters out mm-hmm. in, in the... And the, uh, three of the Boy Scouts wandered over to this guy's place uh, um, one evening and uh, during one of the, the local camping trips in, in on a weekend. And I happen to not have been at that camping trip for uh, for for one reason or another, but um, what happened was the scoutmaster contacted my father, who was chairman of the of the Boy Scout committee, that that the, this guy had taken these three kids hostage oh. and gunpoint with shotgun, and um, we the. There were no local police in the town at the time. There were state police who had to be called in from their offices out, you know, 30, 40, 50, uh, an hour away kind of thing. So they were called, but my father rushed to the scene, and and my mother and I went in the second car right behind him, and we stayed out on the road. And I was about 12 years old when this happened, and I remember, and my father just, he went in and traded himself for the three kids mm-hmm. and let the guy, you know, hold him hostage with a shotgun. And eventually the two state police guys arrived and they went in and they all had a big powwow with this guy. And uh, it was one of those things which was typical at that time where um, nothing happened. Uh, at the end of the day, they, they agreed, the scouts agreed that they would never go near this, this squatter's property again. 
Um, he was known to the police, uh, uh, you know, for stealing cars and chickens, and mm-hmm. you know, he was he was not a good person. He was a dangerous person. But it was it was an interesting thing, and I watched that, and I saw, you know, this is a, this is a, a man who 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 could, you know, break your hand if he shook it, you know, mm-hmm. who had traveled around through Brooklyn. Uh, with his bro- two brothers, they were pool sharks, and they made they made their money going to you know to Manhattan, to Bronx, to Brooklyn. Uh, they would cir- circulate around, and they would play for money. And mm-hmm. they, they weren't they they weren't conning people. They they were you know said we're good, we'll challenge the best guys here for X amount of money. Um, they also worked in my grandfather's tire store changing tires from the time they were, you know, eight, nine, ten years old. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very, very strong, you know, short, but but square, fire, fire plug type of guy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the type of guy that you might have thought of as Harry's grandfather or his father. I was going to say, I, you know, I, I see, I see the connection. I, I do with the anti-hero that you've described. Um, First of all, your father having grown up crime adjacent and then becoming, in, in a sense, a hero by trading himself for the three children. Um, and, and the whole the whole sort of bad guys who are really just part of society. They're just an accepted part of society. And, um, you know, we can see how the rules get blurred sometimes. And, and, um, and they should. And they should, because this is life. And that's it. And, and, and I think... That, that I mean, at that time, uh, people left their cars, their keys in their cars. Yes. Uh, we, we, I would, I was 11 years old, literally. Uh, this is how loose it was. Our parents would, our parents, meaning all the kids, would drop us off, uh, you know, eight or 10 or 15 uh, kids at a time. Uh, at the side of the road, we'd hike in a half a mile to this campsite and stay there for two days, completely unsupervised, completely mm-hmm. unsupervised, mm-hmm. with nobody, because we were we were considered um, acceptable. We all hitchhiked. We all, um, you know, did a lot of things where there was just the parents trusted us. It was safe to do that. There were mm-hmm. incidences that, like I've that. often said, you know, as a female having grown up, I don't know how I survived my youth. Um, when I think back, you know, at the things that we used to do and take for granted, um, honestly, <laughs> I would have very strong words with any of my children if they were living like I lived, you know? Oh, no, and, and, and like that. I mean, we, you know, I, I would take off... Um, uh, and and roam everywhere. I mean, to, to hitchhike or go into New York. By the time I was 16, I was going into New York, and if I missed the last bus home, I would stay overnight in the in the Port Authority or one of the the train stations, Penn mm-hmm. Station, until I got roused out and, you know, went to the next station. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the, our, our parents didn't, it wasn't they didn't care. Uh, my particular parents were, were so caught up in their own, uh, issues, which are again reflective of, of what Harry's doing. I wanted to really, I, 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 in my books, in my other crime books, I do talk about that economic struggle, the struggle to to keep your head above water, your str- the struggle to keep a business going, the, the struggle to mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And it can't be know. understated. I mean, it really cannot be understated. It's got it's got to be recognized for what it is because the economic struggle is the struggle of life. It's the dance of life. Um, more, you know, at least as much as any other struggle. Um, and one of the things that I noticed in being a cross-border person, too, is the economic disparity in the U.S. is quite different than it is in Canada. I don't know whether you'd agree with this, Joseph, but, um, you know, we have poverty in Canada. We can't gloss over it, and we also have great wealth in Canada, and we shouldn't be glossing over that either. But the disparity between poverty and wealth in the U.S., is something that a lot of Canadians don't really fully grasp because we don't really ever live with it. It's um, it's really it's quite alarming in some areas. Well, it's, and not only alarming, it's dangerous. Mm-hmm. And this, what I've tried to, I tend to be a centrist politically, which was, which is why going back to life after America, what I was trying to show uh, that. That there are no simple answers. If you're if you're far right or far left, there are simple answers, and I just don't agree with that. There but are simple answers, but you know, yeah, they're the to the answer, wrong question, really. And this is again where where uh, if there's a theme, you know, that that you see in all of my books, it is this ambivalence, this 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 pull and push between, you know, what you should do, what you can do, what you are going to do. Um, because th- it, life is more complicated. Um, there's more ambivalence than we'd like to admit. There's a lot of layers of, of decisions that have to be made. There is a charming discussion later in, the, in, in Murderland, which uh, there's a couple of them where he talks one, one time about you know drawing the lines in the sand and what that means. And and trying to discern, you know, what your own personal morality is. And this book, you, you, this is, this is what it's about in, in the sense of, you know, on a higher scale and why some people have called it literature rather than just simply a, you know, a good read or a good keeper. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. moves up into another level because I really am addressing those issues. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm addressing the issues of, well, you know, how do you feel if you're in this situation and these are the circumstances? And I think that's that type of thing is it's not a, it's not um, sympathy for the devil or the criminal or whatever. It's what the heck would I do if I was caught between the rock and the hard yeah. place? And that's really the essence of what I write about and what I think about and what I deal with and. I, in some re- really strange ways, with the with the uh, draft resisting coming to Canada, that was um, you know was, was sort of a centerpiece. But it was always the centerpiece. It was a centerpiece before that. Was should I do this? Should I do that? I you know I, I basically want to lead a moral, decent life. Um, and I've you know I've worked a lot in the corporate sector as well with the establishment, with the phone companies and the banks mm-hmm. and the, um, uh, the, uh, the, the governments of Canada and the, the CRTC, which is the equivalent of the FCC in, in Canada. And, you know, I mean, there, there, there's, a, there's a, 
a, a balance that you need to find. There is a balance. There is. And it's not about, as you say, sympathy for the devil. It's not about justifying crimes. Um, in fact, I really abhor corruption. I really do on a very deep inner level. I just abhor it. And yet there is a part of me that I learned when I was very young how to surf the gray areas of life and how to um, withhold judgment where I can, because you don't always have all the keys to understand everything you see and hear. And when you cannot claim to understand it, perhaps you shouldn't judge it, you know? And that's, that is the essence of what Harry is struggling with, because there's, there's things in his peripheral vision all along that are manipulating him without him knowing that he's being manipulated. Now, um, that is all part of the ambiance of the story. And, and everybody sort of has secrets. There's secret layers. There's secret things. Mm-hmm. But it's done in a way that I think people can identify with these, with these secret lives. I mean, people are all doing that. And, and you know, I think, I think morality starts with yourself. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like kind of fix yourself first. You yes. Know, what, are you, what are you doing that, that, you know, that, that is wrong, how can you fix that rather than blaming the other person? It's not always the other person. Yeah. And these you don't mean, have to be grand gestures. These don't have to be grand oh. renovations on a personal level. It can be as simple as that little ripple effect that we're all sort of aware of, uh, or at least should be. You know, where you go into the local Tim Hortons and the, the young lady is struggling behind the cash and instead of giving her a hard time or a dirty look, you, you're, you're patient and you smile at her and there's that ripple effect that kind of, I perceive it going through the day, you know? It's almost like, what is my con- contribution to the cosmos today? Yes, yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know, you're, you're recycling, you know, or don't drop that, you know, don't, don't toss that uh, Kleenex on the sidewalk because mm-hmm. you, don't want, you don't want to put it in your pocket or something. And mm-hmm. wait a couple of steps and put it in a, you know, in a thing. And, and you know, the morality is, is, is tricky. And I think there is a discussion throughout both of my books, um, my most recent books, and, and all the way back, um, trying to figure out all of those things. I, I don't see money as the root of all evil. I see money as simply a storage of, of, of productivity. Um, money is one of the epicenters, but there are multiple epicenters in this world. Um, money is one. Sex is definitely one. And, and early on in, in our chat, um, we talked also about, uh, I think it was more power. You know, power is a big one. The well, last power is, is so much there. Yeah. It's one of the three riches, and, and mm-hmm. um, you know, the, in my opinion, the three riches are actual wealth, um, then beauty and physical health, mm-hmm. and then and then power. And and you know, the the charisma that some people have is a power. You see this. There's people that you. Uh, my dad had had what I call um, uh, a type. Uh, charisma, where people gravitated to him. People would follow him without being asked. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, an, that's an unusual characteristic. It's a wealth. Mm-hmm. And it is something. It is something that uh, you can use to 
to control others and whatever, or you can use it for a benevolent purposes. Mm-hmm. He, he was a was a wonderful um, boss. Uh, you know, it was it was very touching when he died to see all of these these um, uh, working class people who were like him uh, at his funeral. You know, they, they, he had employed some of them for for their whole lives. He obviously and, was able uh, to convey some understanding for their situations. Um, and people love that. They love to know that you understand me on some level or I understand you on some level. People are so addicted to that because we all need to be seen, especially in this crazy, busy world that we live in where nobody has an ounce of attention for anyone else. And when you feel that connection between individuals, it is gold. Yes, and, and someone who has that and then conveys it and can give it to other people is a really important person in all of our lives. Because mm-hmm. uh, you have one minute remaining. I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm a B type charisma. I don't, you know, I don't have that A type charisma. It's a fascinating thing that, uh, that I watch. I watch people who want it and struggle to get it when they don't have it. And Mm -hmm. they should just learn to back off. But they're, but the people who have it, who have it naturally, Mm -hmm. um, are, you know, are blessed and, and they, if they use it positively, and, and this is something that you could see with Harry's father, uh, as Harry finds out more about him, I mean, that he was so generous and that he was, you know, this very strong character, but underneath he's, he's you know, he's a really um, generous, thoughtful person. And you can mm-hmm. see that with Harry, too. I mean, you see that he, 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 he's, he's sensitive towards other people. He's sensitive. You were saying about the generosity that, manifests itself in Harry that he obviously had um, been handed down from his father and and this is why I wanted initially to ask you about the last part of your book where you talk about your mother and your father because as writers we always reveal ourselves whether it's intentional or not and in revealing ourselves we do reveal our parentage you know it, it we are part of a continuum we truly are well I I feel that all writing is autobiographical in some sense. Yes. And even if it's if it's counter to who you are, it's autobiographical because you're trying to you know, I don't want to say deny, but you're trying run to run away. Try you're running away you, from that truth, yes. That essentially that's why I put that in. I thought it would be really interesting for for the for the readers to see how I'm connected to this story. Mm-hmm. And, that, and where, that, where you as a, as a writer fit in, absolutely. And yeah. that is Murderland. And for our listeners, really look this book up because you're going to get a big kick out of it. Go to Amazon right now. Look for Murderland by Joseph Glasner. And Joseph, stay on the line with me for a moment. And I want to thank you for joining us today on Dead to Rights. Thanks very much. I really appreciate your time. I want to thank Joseph Glasner for joining us today on Dead to Rights, the podcast. Again, a reminder to all published authors who may be listening, if you'd like to be interviewed during 2019 for Dead to Rights, please get in touch with me at carrickpublishing at rogers.com and just say, Donna, I'd like to, to be interviewed and I'll be happy to get in touch with you. Now for our short story. 
The Battle of Beavercoat by Melody Campbell Melody got her start writing comedy. In 1999, she opened the Canadian Humour Conference. Her third novel, The Goddaughter, is a comic mob caper. Melody was a finalist for both the 2012 Derringer and the Arthur Ellis Awards and was, for many years, the Executive Director of Crime Writers of Canada. You can visit Melody at her website or at her Funny Girl Melody blog spot. The Battle of Beavercoat by Melody Campbell Mary trundled up the broken sidewalk, feeling very much her 68 years. These young doctors. Stout, he had called her, and she only 160 pounds. Well, 180 on the doctor's scales, but everyone knew there was something wrong with them. In old Dr. Briscoe's day, they would have said, healthy. Instead, today, this one said, lose 20 pounds. Cut out butter and sweets for a start. You're not getting any younger, you know. Time to watch out for cholesterol and diabetes. It was all too miserable, and here she had been so looking forward to her afternoon tea with cookies and tarts. She deserved it, too, after such a tiring day. Maybe if she did without two lumps of sugar in her tea. Mary walked wearily, defeated by the November wind and the doctor's icy voice. The five wooden steps from her door seemed suddenly higher and formidable. The house was old, older than she was. A distant relative had built it before the American War. It had seen the turn of two centuries, and it was past its prime. The roof line sagged on two sides, and the stone foundation was crumbling. Yet it was a good house, stoic and proud, still ready to do its duty, not ready to say goodbye. Mary dragged each sensibly clad foot up, one step at a time, waiting for the right foot to meet its mate before lifting the left one still higher. At the top of the landing, she reached for the screen door, balanced it against her back, opened her vinyl organizer bag, and struggled to locate keys. Ten years ago, Len would have unlocked the front door while she stood patiently by, waiting for it and the screen to be held open for her. But those days were gone, and so was Len. Mary opened her own doors now. Sometimes they seemed uncommonly heavy. Not today, though. Today the door swung inward before she had the key in the lock. Hello? Surely not. She couldn't have. She pushed the door further in and poked her head around the corner. Muddy tracks led from the welcome mat down the hall to the back kitchen. Hello? Is anyone there? Mary shuffled cautiously in the vestibule, clutching her purse in front of her. For a brief moment, she wondered if she had stepped through the looking glass instead. The hallway was suddenly a bewildering place. Remnants of a particularly violent tea party littered the floor. Two sterling silver teaspoons and a broken teacup lay across the entry to the parlor. 
A china rabbit had mysteriously leaped from her collection in the front window to commit suicide on the second stair. Somewhere, drawers were opening and closing of their own accord. Upstairs, it sounds like the Mad Hatter was jumping on the bed. A flurry of activity in the next room left her blinking away, Cheshire cats and staring at an all-too-human male. "'What are you doing?' she squeaked. A young man streaked by her, barely a blur in the hallway, grabbed the handbag from her trembling fingers and bounded out of the house. Mary fell back against the wall, faint with confusion. "'Help!' It came out a feeble bird chirp. "'Oh, this was dreadful! Her purse gone! Robbers everywhere stealing her things! Where was Sergeant Tompkin? Who would help?' She shuddered and tried to focus on producing a really good scream. Another man was running down the stairs, two at a time, with something bulky in his arms, brown and bulging. Mary stared at the familiar bundle, bouncing toward her almost unnaturally. Her beaver coat! Hers! Dark brown sheared beaver, for which she had scrimped and saved for years and years, working at the bank, only to find out later from her niece in biophysics that it wasn't politically correct or even nice to wear dead animal skins. Only now they say it is all right again, because fur is a renewable resource and provides the native culture. And now this, skinny boy... This punk with greasy hair and bloodshot eyes, and who knew what venereal diseases, was going to run out the door with her coat. This was too much. Not my beaver, she screamed and launched herself at the intruder. The boy yelped and tried to shield his face from the clawing hands, but he was no match for her. Oh, no, a skinny kid from the street was no match for someone whose ancestors had come over on the Mayflower. Well, maybe not the Mayflower exactly, but soon after it, and they had fought the Indians. Pioneers they were, not to mention United Empire Loyalists and the Boer War, the United Church and Baden-Powell and the whole Girl Guide movement, which she herself had been involved in all her life. Ha! No mere punk of a boy could expect to deal with that. With an animal scream, she wrenched the massive coat out of his arms and stumbled back against the wall. Indian yells continued to screech from behind a flailing curtain of soft brown fur. The wooden screen door banged shut. Running feet echoed on the wooden steps, hit the grass, and faded abruptly. Back in the front hall, Mary sat in a heap, hugging the beaver coat with all her might. Well, she said, pushing herself up from the plank floor. Her tweed skirt had ridden up rather badly. She smoothed it down with one hand. Next, she held up the coat to check for damage. One rip across the top of the shoulder continued down the length of the armhole. Nothing that couldn't be mended. She clucked with satisfaction. Then Mary did what any good woman whose ancestors had come over on the Mayflower, or at least shortly after it, would do. She put on her beaver coat, first one arm, then the next, and, with battle-worn, torn shoulder flapping like a flag in the breeze, 
marched briskly down to police headquarters to report the break-in to Sergeant Tompkin. The End And that has been The Battle of Beavercoat by Melody Campbell. I always enjoy Melody's capers so much. They give me a chuckle, and I hope that you've enjoyed it as well. My thanks go out to both Joseph Glasner and Melody Campbell for sharing in the fun today. Do you have a question for any of our featured authors regarding the book business? Do you have a theme or a topic you'd like us to discuss? I'd love to hear from readers and writers alike. You can touch base with me at deadtorights.ca, on Facebook under Dead to Rights, or on Twitter at Dead to Rights Pod. Of course, you can always reach out to me, Donna Carrick, on Facebook, under my personal page, or as Carrick Publishing. We're also tweetable at Donna underscore Carrick, at Alex underscore Carrick, or at Carrick Pub. If you have any questions at all related to the book industry for any of our authors, don't hesitate to reach out through the online forums. Be sure to join us next week when we'll be speaking with poetess Helen Burke, and I'm really looking forward to bringing you her work and uh, uh, an interview with her as well on our November 11th uh, Remembrance Day episode. All music, including the theme song Eyes of Gold, has been brought to you by Ted Carrick, composer and performer. Thanks for joining us. See you next week.